Little Haiti is honoring some of its founding community members. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Fernandez is out today. Viter and Maria Juist built the foundation of what is Little Haiti is today. We hear from their son, Miami Herald photojournalist Carl Juist. I chat with him about his family's legacy. But first, we look at the tensions between Broward County Commissioners and the Sheriff's Office over staffing shortages at the county's 911 call center. What solutions might ensure residents will get emergency help when they need it? And then it's Wildlife Thursday. When is the last time you marveled at a butterfly in your backyard? They do more for the greater environment in South Florida than you might think. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from the Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Many residents in Broward County are not getting the help they need during emergencies. Staffing shortages in the county's 911 call centers are costing lives. All of this was uncovered by a recent Sun Sentinel investigation. Call center workers are hoping for a raise soon. That hope was bolstered by county commissions this week when they agreed to draft a plan to give the Broward Sheriff's Office more money for salaries. They agreed after long, loud fights with Sheriff Gregory Tony in the commission chambers. WLRN Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III covered that meeting, and he joins us now to discuss the ramifications. Great to have you, Gerard. Hey, Wilkin. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Now, county commissioners and Sheriff Gregory Tony were meeting after uh, South Florida Sun Sentinel investigation uncovered how dangerous and deadly staffing shortages were at the 911 call center. What was the goal of this heated meeting? So this was the second meeting that Gregory Tony attended um, after the investigation dropped. And the goal was basically, uh, you know, the commissioners tasked him with solving the problem. Uh, what's it gonna take? Uh, at the first meeting, a couple of commissioners um, said, hey, look, give, you know, you have the money, pay them more and you'll retain your staff. Um, and Sheriff Gregory Tony was like, no, this needs to be calculated. And he came back with those calculations and with the asks for more money. Wow. Okay, so those are the goals after that calculation. What, what, what actually happened? Sheriff Gregory Tony gave a presentation um, basically asking for more money. He wants, um, I think it is just about $11 million, just a little bit over $11 million dollars. Um, in total to um, help bolster the salaries. And then he wants a $17 million project where the public safety answering points, basically where the dispatchers are located to be centralized in the public safety building in Fort Lauderdale. Right now, there's three uh, separate locations and he wants them all in one. And he, he says that will help morale. Wow, eleven million total. And and what kind of plan did the county commission agree to? So right now, they're going to vote on whether or not to give the sheriff's office four point seven five million before the next fiscal year, which they said starts in October. So that would be for immediate um, raises to the nine one one dispatchers. And so. Did the sheriff seem to think that this $4.75 million will essentially solve this problem in, in the immediate? 
they they kept calling it a short-term solution, which it is. Hmm. Um, the the big thing that in, in Sheriff Gregory Tony's presentation was that these people are leaving because they will be getting paid more in Palm Beach. Uh, right now, a dispatcher in Palm Beach makes anywhere between fifteen thousand and twenty-five thousand more than a dispatcher in Broward. So the money is a big part of it uh, from the sheriff's perspective. So, yeah. So let, let's segue into the workers. Um, obviously, there's some short term solution based type of conversations going on right now. Let's go to what is actually happening in the 911 call center. Are, are people walking out? Can you describe the, the, the atmosphere? Well, the Sentinel had their uh, first investigation. They published a second piece about um, new recruits walking out. But, I, you know, the sheriff seems to uh, put it on this point that a big part of it is because of the money factor. Um, the other parts include the, the morale. Um, he's saying that this new center that they want to add to their existing building will help the morale because right now the dispatchers are in three different spots around the county. Uh, there's obviously a mental health side of it. Um, the sheriff talked about their rigorous hiring process where last year he had about a little over a thousand applications and 5% of those were the ones who made it through. And that's because they go through such heavy psychological evaluations and background checks. And that's not something he wanted to change. He wanted to keep that um, that baseline for who he hires. Hmm. And in your reporting, did you get a sense that the staffing uh, and retention issues are just about money and pay? Obviously, there's short-term issues, and you mentioned morale. Was that something that Gregory um, uh, uh, Gregory Tony actually mentioned during the, those discussions? The, the morale issues? He brought the morale issues, um, I guess, as a, as a way to justify or argue for that $17 million that would go towards the answering center in the downtown building. Uh, but money was a big part of it. And, and I don't want to, I don't think that's something you can discount uh, with the way the economy has been in the last couple months. Um, the money is a huge part of it. And if you can get paid somewhere, uh, you can get paid more somewhere else. Uh, for doing less calls than Broward handles, which is what Palm Beach County does, um, you know, he's saying that, why wouldn't you go? Right, right. And to your point, uh, inflation is 8.5%, I believe. Uh, cost of goods are going up. Um, is, is the money enough to fix this problem? I, I don't think the sheriff thinks it's just money. I don't think he thinks it's going to just fix the problem immediately. And the county commissioners for sure do not think that. They think that uh, there needs to be new, a couple of them think that there needs to be new leadership in terms of the 911 operators. Yeah. And, and what did county commissioners have to say about the staffing shortages specifically? Well, they, they want it fixed. They want it fixed. They don't want I mean, the Sun Sentinel investigation describes houses burning down, and 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 I think the most egregious one was a was a baby who had died because of a dropped nine one one call. They don't want that to happen. They want the problem fixed immediately. Um, one of the county commissioners who was the most outspoken, Mark Bogan, and they uh, him and the sheriff got into a bit of a shouting match uh, because Mark Bogan wants to totally take away control of the nine one one centers from the sheriff, put him, put the county in charge um, and bring in an expert. He claims uh, they can find an expert who would run it better. And Gregory Tony is totally against that. He wants 
the county out of the 911 centers and total control to be with the sheriffs. Right now, it's a, a split. I'm speaking with Broward County Bureau reporter Gerard Albert III. He's been covering the county commission and the Broward Sheriff's Office response to dangerous staffing shortages at the at the county's 911 communication center. You can learn more about that and read some of Gerard's follow-up coverage on the on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Now, Gerard, what was the sheriff's argument for why BSO can't keep employees at the 911 communication center? Sheriff Tony, uh, during his presentation, put up a chart of how many calls the Broward Sheriff's Office gets versus some of the other police departments they're um, compared to, some of the Coral Springs, Plantation. But the big one that he focused on was Palm Beach County. Palm Beach County, it was under a million calls. Broward County is over two million. And the pay, like I said, Palm Beach County 911 dispatchers getting paid anywhere between 15000 and 25000 more than the Broward County Sheriff's Office dispatchers. And that was his big argument, is that these people are leaving because they're not, we, we can't pay them as much as other places can. Hmm. And what was the pushback from county commissioners? Can you describe who, who shot it and what actually went down? <laughs> sure. I, I mean, Mark Bogan was the first one to talk. And he started off by saying, I've always been supportive of the sheriff's office and giving them more money, which they do ask for every year and most of the time that they get. But Mark Bogan um, was not happy with the leadership uh, in the sheriff's office for the 911 dispatchers. He like he said, like I said, he thinks that the county should take away the control of the Broward Sheriff's Office to run their 911 call centers and he should bring in the county commission should bring in an expert to run it wow Gerard, this all sounds like a massive telenovela right now the way in which you're describing everything the the tense nature of this meeting was there a sense that if the county and bso don't work to fix the issue quickly uh more people could lose their lives because uh their 911 call could go unanswered yes i mean that was a fear of the county um, the commissioners, the sheriffs, you know, uh, they, they think it, it, Sheriff Tony seems to think it's, it's not a problem that's going away anytime soon. And that staffing is, is going to be a problem in the Broward Sheriff's office for, for a while. It's just the size of the County and, and the money they have, but the commissioners don't like that answer. I don't think the public likes that answer. I think, um, that they want something done about it fast. They don't want more people to die, more people to have unanswered calls. And Gerard, let's talk about the public. Uh, were there other people at the meeting who expressed their concerns over this? Yes, a couple people from a, a local group, a community group, spoke and pitched this idea that I think uh, we had heard a lot in 2020 after the protests after uh, George Floyd was murdered of moving funds that would normally go towards the police to these local community groups that respond to calls about mental health, calls about overdoses, not nonviolent criminal activity like that. And Sheriff Tony actually agreed with some of the speakers that, you know, like it or not, this is the sheriff's responsibility. The sheriff gets a lot of calls that are not about violent crimes that are about overdoses or mental health emergencies. But Sheriff Tony didn't go so far as to say, 
yes, we should change this. We should divert funding more. So this is the sheriff's responsibility. So the sheriff needs the money. And what happens next in this story, Gerard? So this plan is being drafted by the county commission. Now at their next meeting, which is in two weeks, they will vote on whether to give the sheriff's office uh, 4.75 million is kind of a, as one commissioner said, stop the bleeding. Um, and that money will go towards hiring and retaining the staff, uh, the, the Broward County Sheriff's Office staff of 911 dispatchers. And whether Sheriff Tony gets the other 28 million he wants, uh, that's yet to be seen. $4.75 million to stop the bleeding, a, a short-term solution. Um, I'd like to thank our guest, WLRN's Broward County Bureau reporter, Gerard Albert III. Thank you, Gerard. Thank you. Still to come, Little Haiti is honoring its late pioneers with a street name. We'll hear about their family's legacy from their son. Welcome to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. Little Haiti wasn't always what it is today. The vibrant community that we know now has been built through many hardships, obstacles, and joyous moments, too. Viter Juist and his wife Maria Juist are some of the early pioneers. Along with a number of other Haitians, they left their home in the late 50s during the dictatorship of Francois Papadoc Duvalier. Viter is considered the father of this community, and he eventually, or he actually coined the name Little Haiti. On Saturday, the Juice family is being honored at the center of the neighborhood is Northeast 59th Street. A part of that street will now be called Vitea and Maria Juiced Way. Joining us now is their son, Carl Juiced. He's a photojournalist with the Miami Herald and the founder of the Iris Photo Collective. Carl, Sakat Fet. Sakat Fet, mon fum. Hey, tout bagarre, fum. Not bully. Oh, thanks for joining us. Uh, the city of Miami is renaming Northeast 59th Street Vita and Maria Justway in honor of your parents. What are some of your favorite memories with them? Oh, man. Well, well first, uh, full disclosure, whenever I talk to my about my parents in public, I, I choke up um, because they to me, they have not passed. They live with, within me. And, and many times I cover this community, I see my parents and if they're Cuban, if they're Haitian, Venezuelan, Nicaraguan, Honduras, anybody who's coming to this country for a better life, for freedom, they remind me of my parents. So I, I, I'm not going to apologize for being emotional when I come talk, when I talk about my parents, but I, I just want the audience to understand where the, where my voice cracks, why is it, why is that's happening? Yeah, no need to apologize. This, this is a safe space. <laughs> so um, my favorite memory is, 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 you know, my parents worked in tandem. You know, my dad, people would come to his, his store and they would line up to, you know, seek counsel. Um, um, politicians would come over and to my, to my dad to, you know, to consult. And my mom did the same thing too, you know, women, uh, kids would come to my, to my mother's house. She used to, um, to help those who, who are new, new arrivals. And we would, we used to have this thing called meh. And meh was, you know, everybody pulled their money together and every week the, that pool of money would be given to an individual. And she did that for the majority of her life. And the, they both understood 
the power of the individual. But they also understood why a community cannot exist if we all do not come together. And, and I, I think it's in that legacy, all my memories it gravitate towards that one theme of togetherness as a family. Now we fight, you know, we fight, God knows we fight, but at the end of the day, we love each other because we're like fingers to the fist. Hmm. It reminds me of that popular phrase, lick all leglies like I, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. Um, and so, um, yes, yeah, school, church, home, lick all leglies like I. <laughs> yeah. Uh, your father was a man known for being quite a fierce advocate for Haitian immigrants. Uh, what compelled your father to take a position of leadership during a time when discrimination against Haitian immigrants was high? The Constitution. Plain and simple, my father didn't fight for Haitians. My father fought for the American dream. It just so happened he happens to be Haitian. He spoke Spanish fluently. He spoke French, Creole. Kind of played around with German. But my father understood what the immigrant, what made this country such a special place. He was well-traveled, well-learned, or well-educated. He understood the difference out of all Western countries, why this was so precious and why other countries followed, followed our leads, our lead. And that being said, he didn't do it for Haitians. He did it for children. He did it for taxi drivers. He did it for, for those who are marginalized. Not just my father, my mother did the same. And though they could have taken different paths, when you run away from persecution, you're not running away from persecution. You're running towards freedom. Hmm. And as you're running towards freedom, you know, tell us more about your mother's role in, in making oh, Little Haiti what it is today. And how, how has she impacted the, that quest for freedom? I think half of Miami Haitian population wouldn't have, wouldn't have gotten their first car, send their kids to, to college. Um, they wouldn't have gone second tier education if it wasn't for my mother. My mother believed when you come together, you can do great things. I remember people would come to my house in their brand new car that they purchased because my mother developed a network system that a community could offer a microloan. You know, a thousand dollars is not much for, you know, these days, but it's, for me, that's how I got my first camera. For me, that's how I purchased my, my first car. She, she, she helped, was harder. She helped you get yeah. that camera? She said, yeah. She said, put your money in the man. Put your money in the man. And a man means hand. Put your money in the man. And when your money comes up, you get your $600. And then you buy your first camera. He's, she says, I'm not going to give you that money. And, and that was a really important lesson that I had to learn. That I had to earn my passion that I had to finance my passion, but more importantly, that I had to give my passion. So that first camera I got, I ended up giving it to a young student. And I told him when I had that camera to him, I said, this is something dear to me. I said, what I want you to do with this camera is give it to somebody else. Hmm. And it goes on, that's, how my, that's what my parents taught me. 
that's the real legacy of my parents. Wow, freedom, financial literacy, that they had their hands in everything at this point, right? Yeah. Nursing. Um, nursing. Nursing, wow. Yeah, my mother, she got her L LPN in her 60s. Let's talk, let's talk about that. Uh, Carl, you and I know that typically Haitian parents want their children to be engineers, doctors. The conservative job list goes on and on. You've been yeah. a photojournalist for the Miami Herald for the last 30 plus years. What do you owe your parents? The truth. I owe them the truth. I owe them that I can be as honest as possible. In a world that's constantly, constantly uh, more engaged with imagery, more engaged with, with not falsehoods, but more engaged with, with, with the curb appeal. My dad didn't care what, what was the color of your skin, Why, how, how you even looked like. But he did measure you by the character of your soul. Well, and that's what I try to do. And I hate to interrupt you. What was the process like when you got Northeast 59th Street named after your parents? Who, who was collectively involved in making oh. this happen? Wow. It started back couple of years back with Michelle Spence Jones, she came to me and she says, hey, we want we think about naming uh, Street after your dad. We don't know what street it's going to be, but we, we think he needs to be honored. And back then I had just, I just moved in with in Eduardo Valcalle's um, beautiful, beautiful studio space. And he said, Carl, I want you to be here. I want you to be in this space. I said, okay. So moved in and then we all know what happened with Spence Jones. She left Miami, and then it got quiet for a while. Then something magical happened. It came back to surface again. And um, Jeffrey Watson came up to me and said, hey, we're thinking about naming the street after your dad. Meanwhile, simultaneously, I have a nephew named Winnie Blaine, which is my sister's son. And he said, he said, uncle, we got to get this name. I said, look, I can't really get involved in this. I'm, I'm, I work for the press. If you want this to happen, you're going to have to do it. I will help you where I can, but you're going to have to do it. He took up that, he took that baton and ran with it. He handed over to, to Jeffrey Watson. But before Jeffrey Watson, it was handed over. There's a woman by the name of Viola. I'm going to pronounce her name badly. Nakis, Nakis, <laughs> uh, Nikis, and she was on the uh, Little Haiti, um, um, Little Haiti Trust, and she was driving around. She said, why there's not a name, any street's name after Bidejus? Because she had known about my dad. She goes, she made it her mission. When, when Jeffrey Watson came to her and said, we want to name the street after a, a, a Haitian uh, pioneer, she quickly jumped in and said, Vita, she should be the person. And she fought for it. And she fought alongside my, my, my nephew. And, and on Saturday, now we'll see the, you know, we'll see the results of all, a lot of people, a lot of people. Hard and and a, a lot of folks made it happen. Now, now the, the, the city of Miami officially recognized the name of Little Haiti about seven Correct. years ago. Uh, what was your father's role in introducing that name to the area? Um, and he was having, he was being interviewed by the Miami Herald. And, and, and apparently during the interview, 
uh, they asked him a question, you know, well, you know, what, what would you like for this part of the community, part of the county to be, the part of the city to be? He says, well, you know, if the, if the Cubans could have a little, little Havana, why can't the Haitians have little Port-au-Prince? And the guy, the guy said, well, that's kind of long name. It's a really long name. And he goes, well, then why can't they have a little Haiti? And it stuck. And that, 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 that conversation made it into the story. And ever since, that's what it's been called. We call it TIET. And my father's store was where Haiti, if you wanted to go back to Haiti, that's where you went. If you wanted music, if you wanted film, if you wanted uh, uh, records, if you want books, if you want even candy, sodas, newspapers. My father brought Haiti to Miami. I, I've, I consider him the, the Haitian Moses. We left <laughs> Haiti and went to New York. The whole middle class of Haiti w- went with us. When we came, when we came to Miami, we were in caravan, I think of six, five cars and one rider truck. Okay, we came down as a caravan. Wow, the, the Haitian <laughs> Moses of TIT. <laughs> TIT, you know, my cousins, my brother's friends, and all of them relocated in Miami. And my father was respected. I mean, he was well, he was loved, but not always well liked because he, he, he told things how, how he saw it. Right. Okay, Carl, one second. Uh, I'm speaking with Miami Herald photojournalist Carl Joost. He joins us to talk about the renaming of Northeast 59th Street in Little Haiti after his parents, who are among the founding pioneers of Little Haiti. You can find more about this story on our social media at WLRN Sundow. Now, Carl, you've traveled around the world covering all types of stories from the intricacies of Miami to the war in Afghanistan. And now you're hosting an up coming panel, uh, a man-to-man conversation surrounding Haitian masculinity, Haiti, uh, and women's rights, right? And women's rights. Uh, Let's explore each. Um, Why do you want to spark a conversation surrounding Haitian masculinity? Well, the conversations have brought a conversation, this specific topic tomorrow night at at six is about um, Haitian masculinity. But the man-to-man concept, the series of conversations, I, I, I got tired of talking to myself and, and I've got tired of not finding, I have really close men friends and we talk about things of substance, of weight, you know, our relationships, our fears, politics, sex, and all those things, those kind of conversations I felt were always happening in a silo. And I wanted to have, I wanted to have a vehicle in which we can stop talking at each other, at each at each other, and start speaking to with each other, and I wanted the public to kind of, kind of listen in on this conversation, because I know when we have those kind of conversations, they can be very transform, they can be transformative, hmm. they could actually elicit change, and that's what it's all about. And the, and speaking of that change mental health is is a topic of interest for for this new generation it's certainly happening right now yes. and and you know you're a father too you have a son how yes. do you pass on your family's legacy to that new generation how, how do you talk about masculinity with him oh you know children do, do not listen to you they watch you <laughs> hmm. they do not listen to you my man they watch you they see how you behave so when I navigate spaces 
I navigate spaces the way my father taught me that I navigate a space. Wear your crown and wear it well. You could bend your knees to pray, but never bend your head to anything. Hmm. Never bend your head Don't to anything. Don't bow. Don't bow your head to anything. Why is now the time to produce a panel like this? Because I think we need to have these conversations. We need to have these. We need to talk about the angst because masculine black males, people of color in general, are under attack by the system. And I don't know why. It, it feels to me like every time I wake up, there's something that's being taken. I don't need to tell you more, right? Look what's happening with with um, with abortion rights, with 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 transgender rights. I, I could go down the list, and I think if you're going to have change, change must start from within. Change, real change, happens within arm length not across the country. And on the so, topic of, of masculinity, okay. you know, there are, there are many ways to describe Haiti from different vantage points. Let's segue to Haiti uh, because you, you mentioned change here and right. uh, <laughs> there's no country in the world that's been looking for change or, you know, the way in which Haiti has been looking for their particular kind of change. But whether you're on the ground in Haiti or part of the diaspora, one common refrain is that Haiti is a beautiful country with potential, but set back by political and economic instability. At this panel, what, what lens are you looking at Haiti through? I'm looking at the culturally shared traditions. You know, we keep always mentioning 1804. And, 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 and that's, that is great. But how do we bring 1804 to 2024, 2023, 2022? And these conversations that we're going to have will at least start that process of taking acknowledgement of that and you want the conversation to be streamlined a bit more in order to fix infrastructure in the city and uh, or I'm sorry in, in the different um, departments within Haiti um, let's talk about womanhood part of this panel also it's a man-to-man panel but there is this emphasis on valuing womanhood um, for example you, you can't discuss the revolution the Haitian revolution without the sacrifices made by Haitian women Sanit Belair Ceci mm-hmm. Fatima, to name a few. Why is it important to talk about women's rights on this male panel? Because every man comes from a woman. <laughs> you can't curse your origin. You have to praise it. It would be silly like the fruit cursing the tree. Every man and woman comes from a woman. As of today, looking back. Now, once that changed, I don't know when, but as of now, that's the fact. And having a strong mother, having a mother who liberated herself first, then liberated her children and her husband second. Hmm. You know, people think my dad is the strong one. No, (laughs) anybody in my family knows better. If my dad is the flesh and my mother was the bone or the bones, she was his spine. She was his compass. 
there's there's a phrase there's a phrase called poto mitan, which means the pole in the center, describing center. how women are the pillar of society, strong. But even that phrase can be a burden on some women. Um, is this panel also uh, trying to highlight the different ways in which women show up for their families um, and the sort of difficulties that may come with that as well? Yeah, I think I think our narratives are, are very similar. Me and me and Christian, we had the same narratives coming from a strong female house household. Um, it was hard for my dad to be present when he was present for everybody else, and my mother made me understand that at an early age. She says, "When I speak to you, I speak to you as your father and your mother." Because she knew she had to carry that because the work that my father was doing needed him to be outside. You know, he was harvesting the land while my mother was cooking the meal. Wow. Wow. The Man to Man series is happening tomorrow evening at the IPC Art Space in Little Haiti. You can find more information on our social media at WLRN Sundial. On Saturday, the city of Miami is renaming Northeast 59th Street, Vitea and Maria Juiced Way in honor of your parents. Congrats. Congrats again, Juiced. Um, um, Carl Juice, he is an award winning photojournalist with the Miami Herald and the founder of the Iris Photo Collective. Thanks again for joining us. No problem. I say one quick thing. This is not for Haitians. This is for Miami. This is Miami Dade. Because our story is your story. I'll leave you with that. (laughs) Thanks again. Still to come, it's Wildlife Thursday. We're talking about small creatures that have a mighty impact. Butterflies. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. It's Wildlife Thursday. In South Florida, we've got a lot of creatures, big and small, that we share this place with call, that we call home. Today, we're talking about those creatures on the smaller side, butterflies. But don't let their size fool you. They have a big impact. They are indicators of the healthy environment, act as natural pest control, and much more. We're joined now by Dennis Ali. He is the president of the Miami Blue Chapter of the North American Butterfly Association. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, how did you get interested in butterflies? Is there a specific moment you can go back to? Well, actually, there is. I'm a longtime bird watcher, long, which I share with a lot of other uh, folks who become interested in butterflies. But uh, about 20 plus years ago, I happened to be in Bahia Honda State Park down in the Lower Keys, and someone pointed out a Miami blue butterfly, which was thought to be extinct, but had reappeared there in that island. And that sort of was the trigger for me to get interested in butterflies. And so let's start with the Miami blue butterfly. Why is it so special? Well, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it was a relatively common butterfly at least along the southeastern coast of Florida, maybe up to uh, uh, Melbourne in that area, and perhaps on the southwest coast. We don't know a lot about its range, uh, but it disappeared. Uh, And we're not quite sure why. People blame habitat loss, mosquito spraying, et cetera, which certainly explains part of it, but there's still something else that's missing. There's still an abundance of habitat available for for the insect, but 
it seems to have slowly but surely diminished in its appearance in Florida. And now it's relinquished to one very small out island near the Dry Tartugas in terms of its natural uh, habitat. It's it's being restored or attempting uh, attempted restoration in various locations on the southeastern coast. But it seems to have winked out uh, over the last 50 plus years. And we're not quite sure why. And, and, and Dennis, this may sound quite new for folks who don't know uh, much about butterflies. Can you describe what a Miami blue butterfly looks like? Sure. It's uh, relatively small, about the size of a quarter or less. Uh, almost always seen closed. That is not your classic butterfly pose where the, the wings are open and you see the top side, what's called the dorsal side. Instead, it's usually a closed butterfly, usually seen nectaring low to the ground. Uh, and its uh, underside is uh, a series of dots and stripes, uh, which ultimately are diagnostic for the butterfly. And that's how you identify it and separate it from its close uh, relatives, of which there are two or three also flying in South Florida. So it's not obvious when you see a small, what is on the underside, gray butterfly, that it's a Miami blue. It probably is not, uh, given its circumstances. But uh, that's sort of what it looks like. Uh, obviously, with the availability of field guides and Google, <clears throat> you can go and see what one looks like. I'd like to say, and then go out in the field and see it, but unfortunately, it's not, it's so, so rare that it's difficult to find, even for experts who are out looking. And again, we're trying to reverse that trend and, and maybe get it restored in various areas that it used to fly. Hmm. And, and just to clarify, they, they disappeared for some years after Hurricane Andrew. Uh, they were thought to be extinct, right? Yeah, uh, they're thought to be extinct. And then in the year, as I recall, 2000, a woman not not from Florida, <clears throat> uh, out of state, was visiting Bahia Honda State Park and came across a butterfly that she tentatively identified as a Miami Blue. And sure enough, she got photographs, and that was corroborated, and there was a lot of excitement around that. Uh, the finding of that butterfly and that and that population existed for about uh, <clears throat> ten years after discovery, and then it disappeared. Uh, fortunately, along the way, the University of Florida and their McGuire Center for Lepidoptera uh, was engaged in a a, uh, a collection and, and uh, an attempt to rehabilitate rehabilitate the population by having captive breeding and interestingly enough uh unlike a lot of species it easily reproduced in the uh in the laboratory uh the bigger challenge was once it was released in the wild figuring out what happens to it and that's continued to be a puzzlement for uh for scientists we're on our sort of second round if you will of captive releases uh trying to learn how to do that both uh, economically, but more importantly, uh, successfully. And we're in the middle of this second genera- second round, not second generation. They produce many generations of butterflies, but this is a sort of a second round of, of butterfly restoration in South Florida. There are obviously beautiful, colorful creatures. <laughs> um, but besides their beauty, what is butterflies' role in our ecosystem? Well, <clears throat> I think it has two roles. One is relatively straightforward it's a pollinator of uh, plants uh, obviously when it nectars on flowers uh, pollination is 
know, that's the flower's deception is to get the butterfly or a pollinator to to uh, do its work for it. But it also, perhaps even more importantly, is a symbol of uh, sort of what our our wildlife uh, needs and what it delivers to our society. It's a obviously a glamour species compared to many other pollinators. And quite frankly, butterflies are not the major pollinators in our world. Instead, they're even more cryptic and probably less glamorous species. Uh, moths, wasps, bees, other uh, relatively to our eye insignificant insects that pollinate, you know, drive the world, if you will. Without pollination, we essentially have no food because I forget what percentage of our food comes directly from plants and plants reproduce essentially through the function of, of pollinators. So butterflies are sort of a keystone or at least the glamour species that uh, highlight the importance of insects. Hmm. I'm speaking with Dennis Oli. Uh, he is the president of the Miami Blue Chapter of the North American Butterfly Association. It's Wildlife Thursday, and we were talking about these beautiful pollinators and their role in our ecosystem. You can find more information about this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um, now, Dennis, what, what are some common misconceptions about butterflies? Well, uh, I think, first of all, they tend to be confused with moths. Uh, and people see things flying, and uh, they're not sure what, what exactly it is. Moths and butterflies are genetically related. They fall under the category of Lepidoptera. Uh, there's, incidentally, about 10 times as many moths as there are butterflies. Uh, uh, butterflies only fly in the daytime. Uh, they are not nocturnal. Some occur, uh, or their flight period is, uh, uh, you know, either dawn or dusk, but clearly they are strictly what are called diurnal creatures. Uh, and I think people don't realize how short their lifespan is. Uh, now, again, remember, they come through several stages. You know, they start with an egg, you know, caterpillar, and they go into a chrysalis, and then they, you know, there's that magic where they emerge as an adult butterfly. Most adult butterflies' flight period is relatively short, uh, sometimes a week, a few weeks, in some exceptions, a few months. But uh, generally speaking, in the adult form, they're pretty short-lived, and they don't hang around a long time. Again, they go through those different iterations, so their total life, starting with the egg, is uh, longer. But in adult form, they tend, they're fairly ephemeral. And I guess the, the final thing is that people don't realize you know, how important, again, not just for their pollination uh, uh, delivery system, but also... You know, they add uh, they add a certain spirit to the out of doors that uh, people, while they appreciate it, they don't understand that it, you know, it's something that's disappearing and it's gradual. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear that butterfly populations are are gradually hmm. uh, decreasing across the board. There are very few species. And, and Dennis, in the you United said, States. Dennis, you said, it, Dennis, you said it adds a, a certain spirit to the outdoors. Um, you, you, you actually go out on a field and do surveys on butterflies. What's that process like? Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'll say quasi scientific. Again, uh, there are probably more scientific ways to do it, but it's a, a fairly uniform. Uh, surveys are conducted principally in the summertime. 
And that's something different about South Florida. We have butterflies that fly all year. We have to realize that we're unique. Uh, most of the places in the United States, you know, when the cold weather shows up, uh, butterflies stop. And uh, you can't go out and look at butterflies in New Jersey in January. Uh, here you can't. Uh, so anyway, uh, there are surveys that are done routinely in and around the 4th of July. Uh, it's just simply called the 4th of July survey, butterfly survey counts. And those surveys uh, are done in a selected area. It doesn't vary. It's a circle that, that is 15 miles in diameter. That circle doesn't change. And you go every year and walk, if you will, walk the uh, the area. As you can appreciate, it's hard to butterfly from a car. So it is a very intimate sport in the sense that you have to be walking and very closely observing the ground and maybe a little bit in the air. Uh, and you count everything you see in the form of butterflies. Hmm. Uh, and those counts are done over a series of years. There's some, the, the counting started uh, in Berkeley, California in 1970 was the first butterfly count. Uh, in the Miami area, we've been doing it for about 30 years, plus or minus. And, then uh, and the counts are scattered. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, you recently started uh, an experimental pollinator site in Coral Gables. Uh, for those of us who are unfamiliar, uh, can you describe what that means? Yeah, it's a site that uh, the Coral Gables, uh, uh, the city of Coral Gables had obtained and is going to ultimately turn it into a neighborhood park. Uh, I asked the city to just stop mowing part of it and to see what happens. And lo and behold, uh, butterflies, moths, and all types of interesting insects showed up. Um, and um, can anyone start an experimental pollinator site, perhaps even in their own backyard? Yeah, in fact, that's a great place to do it. And it really consists of only doing two things, frankly. Stop mowing and don't spray your yard with pesticides. And uh, what about starting a butterfly garden? I think <laughs> I think I may start thinking about that now after this conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can do it. And again, the, the best garden is a garden. I know people want showy flowers, and that's important. But the real key is to have the right host plants. That is the plants where the female butterflies would lay their eggs. And so sometimes the best butterfly gardens aren't necessarily the showiest. Uh, but having native plants uh, planted in your yard, and again, stop mowing, stop spraying. Uh, and you can always add colorful flowers for nectar purposes. So a butterfly garden could be what you want it to be, but it could start with simply doing almost, if you will, doing nothing and letting nature take over. And of course, Dennis, you want to pass this information down at some point. How can kids and younger generations get involved? Well, that was one of the ideas behind the pollinator uh, park is it's something you know that's in suburbia. Uh, children can go there and observe all types of nature that shows up you know, if you just sort of give nature a chance, you know, leave it alone. Uh, we'd like to get some type of educational activities going. There's no substitute for guides who can identify butterflies and all the other critters that are out there. Again, it's 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 pretty remarkable. And at that pollinator site, we've documented almost a hundred species of of animals uh, and plants. And obviously, the plants don't move around, but uh, and most of those species are insects. And that's just simply from stopping mowing. Uh, a good source for information is the iNaturalist uh, website and app. And it's something that uh, is very useful in terms of identifying 
butterflies and other insects that you see. Hmm, I'll have to check that out. Now, you, you've probably encountered lots of different wildlife when doing these surveys, uh, especially if you're out in the Everglades. What anecdotes do you have from those surveys that you go back to? Yeah, and again, those surveys are done routinely in the same spot. And we try to do them at the same time, you know, going to the same locations within the circle. Yeah, so what you encounter, certainly out in Shark Valley and places like that, you never know what you're going to encounter. There's lots of wildlife, uh, ranging from python hunters to uh, alligators to uh, uh, all types of different birds that show up. So it's sometimes uh, hard to keep your concentration because you never know between what humans are up to along with uh, the critters that are out there. Uh, yeah, so it's been an interesting uh, a series of years doing surveys in mm. Shark Valley. And we do surveys in Coral Gables, uh, which includes, again, a fairly large swath of country, although most of, most of it's you know paved, uh, but there still are open areas and grassy areas. And those are, again, uh, you never know what you're going to encounter, especially when you right. have the human interface. Right. Um, All right. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Dennis Ollie. He is the president of the Miami Blue Chapter of the North American Butterfly Association. Thank you so much, Dennis, for your time. Thank you. And that's Sundial for this Thursday, May 12th, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editors, Katie Lepery Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Mers. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band, Palo, at palo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, we talk to an exec behind the Miami Marlins, not to mention condo reform proposals move through Congress. And we talk to our book club author of the month. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thank you so much for listening. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Public Media.